So I got to tell you guys, I love your church. Um, I, uh, I remember seeing a sign stuck along the road, um, like down by five points or something like that. And I thought, oh, there's a new church coming in town. So I get on the information, make sure I got all that written down, hit the website. And I'm like, oh, I love church planters. I do. I love church planters. They are insane. They're not good judges of what projects are. Um, they have no idea what they're getting into or they wouldn't do it. We, uh, we were portable for 418 weekends. We did set up and tear down for 418 weekends. And uh, people go, wow, 418 weekends, that's amazing. Would you do it again if you knew you were going to do it for 418 weekends? And my answer is usually, I want to tell you that I would. <laughs> I don't honestly know that I would, but it's been good. Or as Joel understands this statement, my worst day as a church planner was better than my best day in an established church. So I've enjoyed that. But I do pastor uh, up at Adventure Church, and we've been so honored. We get to come down and help tear things out down here. We're good at destroying things. I had a bunch of druggies recovering, so they're violent. So we uh, brought them down, let them tear stuff out, and uh, man, it was a good time. And we, get, we brought down ice cream for one of your, your first services in here and stuff. So we love you guys. We pray for you, and I'm always happy. And when you see, if you ever look at the analytics on your videos online and you see a random person watching at 2.30 in the morning, the high probability that's me because you guys are kind of my church away from church. Um, so it's kind of, it's, it's really good to be here. We did a, uh, I, I act as a sheriff's, I am a sheriff's chaplain and I'm a chaplain for the Iowa State Patrol. I run all the chaplains across the state of Iowa. And then I serve out of post 12. And so I'm involved in a lot of horrible things. Some of those things I've been involved in. Um, I, I'm sorry if I've ever been to your house in the middle of the night. <laughs> you have my deepest apologies for that. But uh, I've also done a lot of work with um, stopping human trafficking and being involved in that. And it's really gotten close to me. And in 2016, um, our church was a host site for a massive uh, trafficking conference, human trafficking conference. Like we had 750 people over two days and it was intense. We actually got to a point where I had to set a giant trash can near the exit, the front exit and the back, sec back exit because people would get up and they were running out to throw up and they couldn't find the bathroom. So we would just like point in the trash can and so this whole subject is an intense thing, and it's something I've, I've got a lot invested in. This lesson, when I originally did it, was part of a series that we did at Adventure that was called Loving Like Jesus in a Fractured World. And we had to talk about it because we have a lot of people that are broken like that. <clears throat> I made you some notes because I'm a teacher. So if you want to get yelled at tonight, I'm not your guy. Um, so... I've got some notes for you so you can work from those and maybe keep those in mind as we go. And um, they're going to do a good job, I'm sure, of keeping, keeping up with me here on the notes. But I was going to start at the introduction. Let's just go. There's some fill-in-the-blank stuff there you may want to do. So introduction. We, we need a plan to love like Jesus because the reality is loving people is hard. And it's also hard to love people who have uncomfortable problems. It's, you know, there's just some people when you see them coming, you're kind of like, oh, 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 oh I got to take this call. Hey, it's good to see you, you know, and there's nobody there. Um, but we do that sometimes. Or, 
so I've heard. Um, but what happens with the world is because the world doesn't love like Jesus, what the world does is it uses people and then it just dumps them, just dumps them cold. And we need to not do that. We need to be able to talk about this issue of sexual abuse that happens around us. So next thing, A, this is an incredibly complex issue. This is a multi-layered issue. Parts of it obviously are black and white. Parts of it are not so black and white. In fact, some of them are gray and some of them are kind of invisible. The Me Too movement, the hashtag Me Too movement, you know that one, All right? That uh, actually began back on MySpace. Do you remember MySpace? Then you're really old, okay? Actually started on MySpace in 2006. And eventually it rocked Hollywood and a lot of other industries. We saw people we never thought. Chris Matthews, Matt Lauer, bunch of these famous people that were like a part of how you started your day um, were suddenly tossed aside. I went back and I counted and there were like 200 famous men, politicians, news people, and um, CEOs and stuff that lost their careers. There were like two dozen women that lost them over the same thing with the Me Too movement. In the 2016 presidential election, we saw allegations of sexual misconduct against a presidential candidate at an unprecedented level. During the Senate confirmation hearings for Justice Kavanaugh, we watched friends argue over allegations against the Supreme Court justice nominee Nominees, some believing he was guilty just because he was a man. Some believing he was guilty just because of a class or because of a political party he was associated with. Some of them just believed he was guilty because he had simply been accused. And after it, there was almost nothing on the media about the fact that more than half of his accusers recanted and said, no, it didn't happen. I just needed to block that nomination. And now we have a woman hailed as a vice president-elect who just less than a year ago said she believed the sexual misconduct against her now president-elect was true. So in the interest of honesty for a minute, let's, let's talk about the intellectual divide on this. Nearly all the media reports, you can go back and Google this, nearly all the, the media reports during the Kavanaugh hearings stated that only 2% of the reported sexual assault cases filed are false. They all quoted the same study. I bought the study and read it, and nowhere does it explain the 2% number that it gives. Nowhere. No evidence, no study, nothing. It's just simply made up out of the air. Yet the Department of Justice Statistical Studies, their evidence says that up to 40% of sexual assault cases are false and filed for reasons having nothing to do with any sexual assault. So now there's obviously a conundrum for us because we understand sometimes they're true and sometimes they're not true. So what do we do with that? Um, but tonight, we're not gonna talk about high profile cases in which we don't actually know the people involved in which we don't actually know the situations 
Uh, we have no personal knowledge of the actual events. So tonight we're not talking about false accusations. Tonight what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about what we know to be true personally. And this brings you to the next thing in your notes there. We're going to look at practical solutions as learned by our neighbors who've experienced sexual abuse and have begun the recovery journey. So every once in a while I get on Facebook, which by the way, I literally loathe Facebook. Um, but it has its uses. And uh, so I posed the question to people. I said, hey, if you've been sexually abused, I would like to hear about your story. Are you recovered? Tell me about what has happened with you since. And I got, I think I got like 150 replies back in private messages. Um, and so most of those replies, which was really interesting to me, were people in Davenport. So people who live in the neighborhoods here. And it's been really interesting as some of them have talked through their healing and their recovery. And in those stories, I saw trends that are actually consistent with what God's word has already said about this on this path to hope and healing. So let's run through some things here. Number one, here's the first thing I've got to do. I must acknowledge the prevalence of the sexual abuse problem. This thing really is a problem. It is for real. It's not all manufactured. Now, the good news is that even though the population has increased since then, sexual violence has fallen by about 63% since 1993. That's good. Here's the, the counterbalance to that. The bad news is they guesstimate that about 80% of all sexual assaults go unreported. Statistics tell us that every 98 seconds an American is sexually assaulted, every eight minutes that victim is a child. It's projected that only six out of every 1,000 perpetrators faces justice. One in three women, one in six men have been the object of sexual abuse at some point in their lives. Now, I want you to go with me, and I, and I put the scripture in your notes there so you don't have to do a lot of paper flipping, but you're sure welcome to do that. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. In the original language of this verse, it, there are 19 sins that are listed. Um, and I've, kind of, I've underlined some of these. I, I, I'm going to go from the New Living Translation on this because I like how it's just, you don't have to guess what it means. It's super clear. But watch this as we go through this. These are the sins that are the characteristics that exist or pre-exist before a sexual assault. And then four of them are actually sexual. Watch this. 1 Timothy 3. You should know this. In the last days, perilous times are coming. People will be self-absorbed, right? Because if I'm going to molest somebody, I am self-absorbed. I don't care what happens to them. I'm all about me. And money-hungry. They will be arrogant and self-promoting. Abusers are often the nicest people you have ever known in your life. Um, they will scoff at God, reject their parents and all authority. They will be ungrateful. They will respect nothing and no one. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will be abusive and will lie. They will lack self-control. They will be brutal and will hate uh, anything that's good. They will turn on their friends be unconcerned about the consequences of their actions, care only for themselves, and addicted to lust. They will pretend to be religious, but their private lives will rebel against godliness. You realize in the last few months, 
there have been quite a few pastors that have fallen very publicly. Some of them are local people that we don't really see, you know, we just hear about it through the grapevine. And then there have been some big guys that have fallen. Um, and man, they made a lot of noise as they fell. And what's happened is the reputation of their congregations is now severely damaged because after it comes out, we find out that the church is new. The church leadership knew, and the church leadership didn't do anything about it. And so we continue to see those things. Now, let's talk about sexual abuse defined. Sexual abuse is any sexually focused visual. So that's going to include everything from Sports Illustrated February to pornography online to anything that you're looking at from a sexual orientation. You're looking at it, you're sexually focused on it. So sexual abuse is any sexually focused visual, verbal, or physical activity without consent, and in some cases with consent. Regardless of uh, a state's uh, age of consent laws, Iowa is 16. I'm usually proud of Iowa, and then Iowa does something stupid like that. Um, Anyone under 18 cannot enter into a legal contract. But I think pregnancy is very much like a contract when you're 16, right? There's a term to be fulfilled and there's a whole lot to get out of it. Um, yeah, so I think there's some foolishness. The law becomes nonsense at that point. But that's the idea we're going to look at. So let's keep going. So here's the second thing I need to be looking at. Number two, I must acknowledge the damage caused by sexual abuse. Now, Abuse is abuse, and it's got so many things in common, whether it's just physical or whether it's actually sexual. There's so much in common. And in Psalm 39, David writes about people who were abusing him. Now, listen to his words. Think about what we just read just a second ago here um, out, of, out of 2 Timothy, and think about these words. It's very consistent. Psalm 39. I said... I will take heed to my ways that I sin not with my tongue. I will keep my mouth with a bridle while the wicked is before me. He says, I'm not going to say anything while my abuser is nearby. I was dumb, right? Quit talking, right? I was dumb with silence. I kept my mouth shut. I held my peace even from good. Because when you're abused, you can't feel, you get to where you can't feel pain. You also can't feel joy. My heart was hot within me. Oh, wait, I missed, I missed a part here. I was dumb with silence. I held my peace even from good. My sorrow was stirred. In other words, my suffering got even worse. My heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burned. While I was thinking, this emotional pain burned like this hot iron inside of me. Then I spake with my tongue, Lord, make me to know my end and the measure of my days, what it is that I may know how frail I am. He's saying, Lord, listen. How long do I have to live like this? When can I die is what he's asking. How long do I got to suffer like this? When will this be over? All right, so some stuff here. A, got a problem. We're afraid to talk about this openly. Most churches won't even touch this subject. It's, you know, and, and the truth is, victims won't talk about this. Very seldom. Especially if the offender is nearby. So one of the, one of the gals who wrote in to me, and I'm going to read you several, several words or quite a few things from people who responded to me. One woman wrote, I told my mother, who was physically abused by my father, 
And she would just tell me to stop lying about it. And then she would blurt it out in front of my uncle, the abuser, who would punish me for lying. We can't be silent about that. All right, next thing B. Our silence only makes the suffering worse. So there are three phrases that came out over and over and over almost word for word in these letters that I got from people. They, they, were, they were these. I wanted to tell someone, but I couldn't. I tried to tell someone, but no one would listen. I tried to tell someone, but I was punished. I mean, you can't get help if you can't call for help, right? So the point of all abuse, whether it's verbal, whether it's physical, whether it's sexual, whatever form it is, is always domination and control. That's what it always comes down to. So, when that is asserted on us and we go quiet, what we do is, see, we internalize our suffering and we turn it into fear and anxiety. But what happens is this kind of abuse usually ends up with a really distorted worldview. 94% of women who are raped experience symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder during the two weeks following the rape. 30% of women report symptoms of PTSD nine months after the rape. And you probably know from conversations with people, your loved ones, friends who've been raped, it goes a lot longer than nine months. One woman wrote to me, she said, I have a wonderful husband who's loved me despite my past, but I've been very unfair to him. Our sexual life has suffered severely for two decades because of a few hours of abuse I suffered 30 years ago as a child. Another woman wrote to me, she said, I decided the way to avoid being sexually abused uh, anymore was to make my body as unattractive as I could to my uncle. So I ate all the time and I put on a lot of weight and I even quit showering and would just recycle dirty clothes so I would smell. Instead of driving him away, it just made him angry when he would capture me. All right, here's the next one, D. So what happens is when you're in that position, we start looking for any way out that we can find. Any way out. Suicidal ideation is a very constant struggle for many people who've been sexually abused. Very consistent across the board. One man wrote to me. He said, I began drinking my dad's vodka in the fifth grade after I was molested by a family friend. I wanted to tell someone to help me, but no one listened. At 11, how was I to know that I was now on the path to becoming an alcoholic, suffering three divorces, being estranged from my ch children, and having one failed suicide attempt? Remember King David saying, God, you got to tell me how much longer is this going to go? How much longer do I got to put up with this? Tell me when this is going to be over. 
People who've been sexually assaulted are more likely to use drugs and alcohol than the general public. 3.4 times more likely to use marijuana, six times more likely to use cocaine, 10 times more likely to use opiates or meth. 33% of women who are raped contemplate suicide. 13% of women who are raped attempt suicide. There was an Australian study that found that children who are sexually abused have a suicide rate ultimately that is 10 to 13 times the national average. 32% of the children that have been sexually abused have attempted suicide. 43% admit to thinking about it. Man, the damage is substantial and it's got to be taken seriously. And we have to realize it is all around us. I think we're blessed in our culture. I've been in cultures where it is literally a way of life. Um, there are certain, certain cultures around the world. We, we uh, handled a runaway one night uh, that uh, was actually being taken by a human trafficker. We chased him and her over toward Peoria when we finally caught up with him. And uh, uh, Illinois State Patrol got him. And so we got him and brought him back. And one of the problems, this girl, the culture, her family culture was this. Getting raped happens to everybody. You'll be fine. It's just part of life. Get over it. But there are whole cultures that are built on that idea. We're blessed in the U.S. that we go, mm, I don't think so. Nope, not going to put up with that. All right, number three. I need to understand the healing process. And the thing is, it really is a process. In fact, I'll encourage you to circle that word process. It really is a process. You don't just, boom, I'm over it. Let me give you what may be the most important verse in this lesson. This is Hebrews 13, 3. Remember them that are in bonds. Now, obviously, he's talking about Christians, but I love the principle. Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. He says, in other words, listen, look on victims of abuse as if what happened to them happened to you. If you're a parent, you take, when someone tells you they're abused, you take it as seriously as if one of your children came and said they were abused. I mean, you think about it. So, remember them, they're in bonds. Look on them as if what happened to them happened to you. What does that reflect? All right, remember the, the greatest commandment? Shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, or depending on if you're going on Mark or Luke. One adds one more, right? Um, and then there's a second commandment that is equal to that first commandment, which is this. Love who? Your neighbor as yourself. Man, if somebody was, if somebody was abusing you, would you respond? Would you want someone to respond to that? Yeah, absolutely. You would want help. You see, it's very important for us to talk about ab abuse but not just talk about it here, it's actually what's really even more important is that we listen. We listen when people come to us. God warns us about not listening when it comes. God judges the abuse severely. But understand this, if one comes to you for help and you don't help, God's going to judge the abuser. God's also going to judge you. Watch this. You know this verse, Luke 17. Then he said unto the disciples, it is impossible, 
but that offenses will come. In other words, it's going to happen. But woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he cast into the sea and that he should, then that he should offend one of these little ones. He says, wait a minute. So God is going to offend anyone who abuses one of these little ones, especially right beyond that, anyone who abuses them, but he's also going to judge anyone who doesn't respond for the cry for help. I think this is so fascinating because sometimes it's not the abusers that do the most damage. It's the family members that don't act. Oh. You know, the story, the, the story of the uh, Good Samaritan, the thing that irritates me the most is that second guy that walks by because he actually walks over within range and looks at that guy. You got a guy dying on the road thinking he's going to die, a guy who's worried about his family, what's going to happen to his family, and here he can see a shadow and somebody coming close enough to look in detail at him, and then he walks away. Man, that guy really irritates me. We do that when someone comes to us, and we look, and we don't do anything about it. Lessons from the stories survivors sent me. All right, A, I need to get to safety. First thing, if you're being abused, you need to get to safety. I had a gentleman write me. He said, when I was 13, I was terrified, but I called 911 and they took me to safety. See, when you're abused, you need to tell someone you can trust. And if you tell someone that you can trust and they don't act, you're going to have to pick somebody else. I mean, that's the reality of it. But the biggest thing you can do, those three numbers, 911. One, I work with those people. You dial those three numbers and something is going to happen because there has to be an investigation. Someone is going to come to your house and ask questions. Next thing, B, do I need to get safety? B, <clears throat> this is especially as you're getting older, as you're growing through this. I need to face the truth and embrace the pain. So a woman wrote to me, she said, it was an older female teacher that approached me in high school and convinced me that a sexual fling with her would be okay. At first it was fun, but then the demands came and the relationship turned violent. I graduated, left it all behind, and then came, uh, okay, I graduated, left it all behind, and then came the internet. I wanted intimacy with someone, but the only place I felt safe was looking at pornographic sites, and that turned me off on men, too. My friends, they all tell me how happy I am. I smile on the outside, but on the inside, I am dead, and I cannot feel my smile. So sometimes we choose to stop feeling because it hurts so bad. You know, I... If you uh, are on antidepressants, you will actually understand a little bit of this. I was on antidepressants for 14 months. And I'm going to tell you, it was a good thing for me. It was a great thing for me. One of the problems with being on an antidepressant is you don't feel any lows. You also don't feel any highs. Because it's made to level all that out. And if you don't, in this case, embrace the pain, embrace what you've been through, you won't ever be able to have the real joy of getting past it. Because you have to acknowledge what happened. Um, you need to unchoose the deadness. So another woman wrote me this. 
When I saw the negative, when I saw the negative effect my past abuse was having on my husband and my kids, I went to a counselor who who eventually convinced me to embrace my pain and feel it. I needed to allow myself to feel again so that I could process the pain and the emotion. It was hell. She did that in all capital letters, by the way. It was hell. But to my surprise, I also began to feel joy again. And it was worth it. All right, let's go to the next thing. See, I need to tell my story. You've got a story to tell and people need to hear your story. One woman wrote, after I was raped, the best thing that anyone did for me was listen to me. Only then could I accept that it wasn't my fault. And it was only then that I realized I was not alone. Now, there were several stories like this next one I'm going to read to you. This one is kind of funny. Uh, She wrote, my cousin had molested me for several years because I was too small to fight him off. I felt alone and hopeless and angry, but mostly hopeless. I felt I was being punished for something. I wondered what I had done for him to choose to ruin my life. One night, my sister and I were up watching television late, and she just asked me if our cousin had ever touched me. And I asked her, why are you asking? We discovered that the days he was not molesting me, he was molesting her. I was no longer alone. And we cried, and we hugged, and we laughed so hard we started crying again. And we decided it was time to destroy him. (laughs) And destroy him we did. People finally listened. You know what, so, you know when, when I'm sitting at my table's kind of in the middle of the room. If you've ever been in our building, it's the worst laid out church building in the history of badly laid out church buildings. I mean, if Guinness had a had some kind of a category for that, I would apply. Um, but I said everybody has to come within probably 20 feet of my table to come through the building. And I sit there and I watch people go by. And when I see them go by, I know their stories. I just, I get so amazed when people come by and I can't believe they're still functioning with the horror that they've been through. Yeah, I know a lot of you, I know you guys are all stories. You all have stories. Some of you have stories that you haven't even told yet, but you need to because your stories matter. See, your stories, your words are like pictures describing pieces of your life. And our lives are like puzzles and our stories are like these pieces. And when you tell your stories, what you're going to find out is that your pieces sometimes may be the missing pieces and someone else's puzzle they're trying to rebuild. And maybe their story has pieces that will fit together with yours. And from the lives of others, you can start to complete your puzzle and get healthy again. And you realize, I'm not alone. And when you realize you're not alone, it's the light of freedom starts to shine into your life because those are the steps toward being delivered. All right, next thing. In my recovery, D, I need to identify evil distortions of God's design. Right? Satan always takes things and distorts it, right? Started in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say to you? And it wasn't anything God had ever said to him, right? One of our men wrote me this. 
He said, I was molested by a man when I was 10 years old. I thought it was cool at the time, even though I knew it felt wrong. For the next 10 years, I believed I was gay, and I couldn't figure out who I was. I tried to commit suicide twice, but I could never tell anyone why. So, sex within the confines of marriage, as God intended, is a beautiful thing. Sex outside of that damages us. Damages our relationship with others. Even if the rest of the world's doing it, it still damages you. It damages your relationship with God. Even if you're a willing participant in it, it still damages you. Listen, if you were sexually abused, what was done to you is outside of God's plan for you. And the big thing I want you to understand is it was not your fault. You didn't deserve any of that. None of that should have happened to you. I guarantee you, if I'd have known about it, life in prison is not enough to scare me out of helping you. I mean, that's the reality. We need to step up. It's not your fault. But until you choose to seek God's plan for restoring you while you can get away from the abuser physically and you can get past that specific event, you can't get past the after effects. And you're going to have a hard time knowing the hope of what God wants to do for you. All right, number four. As a church, I must acknowledge how Jesus cares. So remember Jesus was walking in this crowd and there's this woman who I find it fascinating. He said she'd suffered at the hands of many doctors. Basically, they're all telling her, try this, try this, try this, try this. And they're billing her continuously. So she's bankrupt. She's homeless. She's bankrupt. And she sees Jesus. She's heard these stories. She sneaks up behind him. Remember what she does? Sneaks up behind him and just gets in there just enough. She don't want him to see her, so she's down low. She's going to sneak attack him. She reaches up and she just touches the edge of his robe. And I love it because, remember what happened with Jesus? He said he felt it go out of him. And he turned, and he looked at her, and she's embarrassed because she feels like she just shoplifted and got caught. I mean, that's, where, that's what she thinks. And I love what Jesus says to her, Matthew 9. Jesus turned about, and when he saw her, he said, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. And the woman was made whole from that hour. I love it. That was Jesus' concern. He didn't care that she shoplifted on him. Right? He just thought, that was faith. That's the whole thing I'm after. She had faith. Remember in John, some hypocrites brought a woman that had been, been a caught. Uh, she'd been caught in the act of adultery. Always amazes me. Usually two people are involved in adultery. But this woman figured out how to do it by herself. And Jesus confronts all of those who had used her for their own pleasure. And then he reached out to her and he set her free because he focused on who she was. He didn't focus on her sin. He focused on her. Let's go, let's go in the notes here. A, I must recognize that Jesus focuses on my pain. 
So for that woman to be prostituting herself, she's probably also a widow. One of my men wrote to me, I always asked where God was when I was being abused. And one day I found a verse that opened a new world to me. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. I'll tell you what, this guy is like really saved. He's on fire. Sometimes we have to tamp him down just a little. All right, the next one, B. I must see that Jesus treats me tenderly. So you see that with the woman at the well. Jesus, Jesus poked fun at the woman at the well. He, he laughed at her. He, he was funny with her. And that's how he got her attention. He cared about who, he, who she was. He, he realized that, listen, you only tease people you love, right? So I'm going to start teasing her out of the gate because she's already wanting to fight with me. And I'm, we're not going to do that. He handles this woman here caught in adultery so gently. There's so many other examples of that. Your pastor told me I have to have you out here by midnight, so I can't keep going over all those. All right, let's do the next one. All right, I'm a C, so I got to see that Jesus treats me tenderly. He's going to treat me kindly. The next one, C, Jesus will reward my trust. That's the big thing that so many people, we have so many problems. You know, if you were sexually abused by your father, you probably have a hard time with God too. This is just the reality of it. Our fathers are the first representation we get of God generally. And so it gets really hard. I had a, uh, my, when I started, I started in youth ministry. And my first uh, job was in Greencastle, Indiana. And I had a youth group. We had 96 kids in my high school youth group. And six of them came from homes with the original parents. That was actually three and three. Everyone else were either single moms or blended families. And so when we would talk about God being a loving father, one of the things my wife caught at first, we started losing connection with the kids. I mean, they just started drifting off and talking among themselves and all that. And my wife came up with it. She goes, you know what? These guys, for most of these kids, dad is someone who doesn't send support. Dad is someone who hit mom. That is someone who doesn't take care of the family and doesn't keep his visitation days. I think we're going to have to change this. You know what we did? The Channel 4 out of Indianapolis at that time started showing Leave it to Beaver and Ozzie and Harriet and all that stuff. And so we had that. And Ips was like the talk of all the kids, these great black and white shows that had been brought back, you know. And they'd never seen black and white before. They couldn't believe the world looked like that. And uh, so we started using June and Ward Cleaver. <laughs> as examples and we started tying their love for their kids into without the goofiness toward God love for us and finally those kids started understanding it Jesus said if you're tired from carrying heavy burdens come to me and I'll give you rest you got to trust him to do that I want to go one last thing here's the conclusion for you guys cross point must be a place of shelter People got to know this is a safe place. Kids that come in here and say, I'm being abused, I'm being hit, I'm being touched. You guys have got to respond to that. At Adventure, we tell everybody, consider yourself a mandatory reporter. If you work with kids, you're a mandatory reporter. The state actually exempts churches from that role, but we don't. We're in that. You've got to be there. 
testimony from a woman that sent me a note, one, one last thing here. I was molested by an uncle from the time I was in kindergarten until I was 16. I told my mother, who was physically abused by my father, seems to be a theme, doesn't there? And she would just tell me to stop lying about it. She'd blurt it out in front of my uncle who would punish me for lying. It turned me so against men that I could only feel safe sexually with women. I experimented with a lot of different things sexually, but the emptiness inside me led to two suicide attempts and a life soaked in alcohol and a body broken by meth and opiates. It would be 20 years before a friend would invite me to church where I could learn that I was not crazy and I was not alone. And I finally began to find peace. That needs to be you guys.